Look at the Boga Honey Podcast. That's why I, I tried not to have cams on my bow. I don't have to deal with slippage or anything Shut like up. that. You just put a new string on there, you're fine. What is Boga? But seriously, that's the dumbest thing ever. It, it go, I am all about Just strap it to your pack. Really appreciate the fact that you're from Michigan and not Georgia. You don't want to be the next Mark Kenyon. No. I'm a shit show. <laughs> that's, that spot's taken. You can see how pathetic Jared's face is right now. <laughs> because that's how it looked. It was just like, is this good enough? Before we begin today's episode, we're going to quick thank some of the companies that helped make this show possible. Not sure if you guys have heard, but HuntWise has come out with what it calls HuntCast 2.0. Recently, they partnered with Jeff Sturgis, who has decades worth of data, and they've taken that data to compile a prediction as to when you should be out in the woods. So they, they rank it on a scale of 0 to 100%, or the way we prefer it is deer. So when it's a five-deer day, you better be in the woods. So check it out, become an elite member, and learn how to maximize your time in the field, because really, you can't put a price on a good hunt. Tree saddles. We've all heard of them, and we love using them. Why? They're lightweight, they're easy to use, and if you use the right company, you can have everything you ever need for saddle hunting. In walks Trophy Line. <laughs> Trophy Line <laughs> just came out with a platform this year called the Mission Platform, and they came out with sticks to go with it. So why else would you want to use another company? Go to TrophyLine.com, use the promo code BOGA, Hunting TL20. <laughs> Worst code ever. <laughs> <laughs> Longest code ever. But do it because you get a good discount. You get 20% and it's off. good stuff. Trophyline.com. A lot of people ask us why we partnered with First Light. And it's because they have amazing systems, and the base of all those systems is around merino wool. Merino wool is great because it keeps you warm when it's cold out and cold when it's warm out because it pulls moisture away from your body. And best of all, it doesn't stink. No so stink. So if you're looking for a, a great new system, can't recommend them highly enough, firstlight.com. We all know that Vortex is the leader in optics, so we can't say enough good things about them. We love them. We use them in the field every time we're out there. But what most people don't know is their clothing line is just as good. There's a brand new fall line that's just come out. We've got a couple of pieces from that line, and they are freaking awesome. So if you want to save 20% on your next purchase, head over there and use the promo code BOGA20 at checkout for 20% off. Jared, how much do you weigh? Probably two, I'm pushing 200. Well, I got good news for you, pal. If you drop in the woods, throw my Seek Outside pack on, throw you in the meat hauler, I'm dragging you out full one trip. The Seek Outside short tail. The pack that we decided to run this year at Boga Hunting works in a tree stand, hauls a lot of weight, cinches down or expands based on what you need, and it's great for hiking too. If you want to save 5% off in your next purchase, use the promo code BOGA. All right, welcome to uh, another episode of the Boga Hunting Podcast. Uh, today we have a very special guest, and usually it's me and Jared. Um, Jared just got covid so he is. Oh no! Yeah. So he's out. So I'm solo uh, today. So and usually he's like the technical guy. So he's actually I'm recording right now because otherwise I'll forget to hit the button. Yeah. But he handles yeah. a lot of this stuff, and I'm just lucky to to make sure everything is is you know gonna get recorded. So. Is he doing okay? Yeah, he's fine. He's kind of a baby about it, if you ask me. You know, it's just COVID. <laughs> yeah, it's a, honestly, you know, for 
most Americans, it is just COVID. Yeah. And well, it's not even as bad as the 24-hour flu. No, you know, it's, it's it depends. And I shouldn't give them a hard time. I had, So I got COVID in March. And really? Yeah, I, I was sick wow. for six weeks. So actually, oh, I, I boy, probably am. Yeah, I think I'm. When it comes to like who's the weak link, I think it was me because I, I he seems to be doing fine. <laughs> I was down link. forever, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Jeff, where where do you come from? Like, what do you do? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, and it's uh, you know, and partly it's kind of like every, just about every day of my life, I'm spending it uh, with something whitetail related, and yeah. that's my career. Um, I came from a fishing uh, family, and. You know, sometime back in the day, this is when I was 78 years old, which is going back to 1977, 78. Somewhere in there, I was given Field and Stream, Outdoor Life subscriptions for birthdays, and I started seeing this hunting stuff, and it just was so appealing. It was natural just to step over from fishing to hunting. We still maintain we're a fishing family. We still vacation, but no one in my family deer hunted. And so through that, it developed a passion, especially with myself, my brother at first, too. Yep. Well, if we were going to deer hunt, we had to basically figure it out from magazine articles and just spending time in the woods. Yeah. Experiencing ourselves. So that transition into in the mid nineties, uh, I bought my first parcel um, before we even bought our first home um, <laughs> to, to actually hunt. And, and uh, White Tails was in a section of the Palm area of Michigan where I hunted for um, about 10 years. Um, from there, I, we moved to the UP of Michigan when we were on a fishing trip. And uh, I bought some land up there. I figured that it was better to see no deer and no people than, than <laughs> yeah. to have the onslaught of people down where we were at in yeah. the area. From there, I progressed to trying to figure out how to uh, build the land best. I started writing articles. Um, really, was influenced heavily by John Azoga, um, probably the most famed deer research biologist he's up in the UP in Michigan. So um, through that, uh, Jim Isla with the state of Michigan, um, Michigan State University, uh, soil extension, uh, really started looking at food plots, how to manage habitat, and got involved in the QDMA. Yep. And from there, it started a career in 05. And um, to date, I've been to over a thousand client parcels in 26 states. I'll be finishing my sixth book here. We have a time uh, webcast or a uh, web, web seminar. Yep. And then, um, you know, YouTube channel. And they have over right around 600 YouTube videos now. There's about 600. Uh, um, articles on my site and so really for me it's all whitetail all the time yeah i'm pretty boring i don't do much else as far as uh <laughs> you know i even i do a little turkey hunting because it's fun with the family in the spring yep um, i usually call for, uh, wife diane or one of the boys uh, but other than that no mule deer hunting elk hunting it's just all whitetail so that's kind of my life and i look at it like you know, there's a lot of other people out there. If you spend as much time in the woods for whitetails and thinking about it and taking notes and writing articles, videos, as I've done, then yeah. you would quote, be considered a guru. Whitetail <laughs> guru. It was. Uh, so that's how it happens. I, I spent a lot. Yeah, it's just, you spend a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, and if you if you look at things with an open mind and always ask why, then yeah. it leads to a lot of answers for the moment because it's always changing. See, I got to go back to something you said a minute ago. Um, you bought your first parcel of deer hunting property before you bought your own house. Is that right? Yes. Yep. And you were yeah, married. Like at the yeah, same time. Yes. Yeah. And, and you stayed crazy. married. Yes. <laughs> and now we were, we were in the transition of moving at that time. So it was kind of, you know, I could say it was almost the same time, but um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a step in that direction. We stayed in the camper yep. and we traveled up there and uh, we were fortunate to buy that 
chunk. It was 36 acres somewhere on there around, along the Cass River. Okay, uh, yeah, in, sure. And uh, uh, I think that's San Lac. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, it's, that's uh, good to know. And it's good to hear another, you know, a, a surprising amount of uh, Michigan guys. We, and we So, we're you know, obviously, we're from Michigan, uh, in the Grand Rapids area. And we have a lot of Michigan guests on. And that's actually really not intentional. It's just, it's funny how many guys in the hunting you know community that really either originate from michigan or, or live there now oh definitely and it's it's it has such a risk rich history of tradition deer hunting and yeah i know like brian murphy who's the executive director of the community maine he was the first one he was out there what 30 years yeah like 25 years and he's he's since moved on but he told me that at one time he dreamed of going up to the up of michigan yeah that's where a lot of the magazine articles came from so you well, know, it's crazy you, you know, back at the rich, the history. Yeah, no, and I was just, um, I had put a post on, on Instagram a while back, was driving through the UP, um, stopped in a gas station, and I mean, there are these just giant bucks on the walls. And I'm like, hey, you know, this is just <laughs> kind of unique. Like, hey, you know, uh, you guys, you were out in Iowa, or, or you know, what, what'd you do with this? And the guy, the guy behind the counter is laughing. He's like, no, those are from the UP from 64 to 92. And he's like, you know, back yep. then that was this was the Iowa, like you know, the UP was, was like a magical place. Well, they they got to be able to grow old. Yeah. And uh, and then, um, but that's you might have stopped at the Cini gas station. They have some monsters there on twenty. That's exactly where I stopped. So, yeah, that's one of the best gas stations in the entire UP. So I'm not surprised. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you you know what? You're the second person that has called out, and it's not like a giant gas station or that you know like one that no it's a little family one though. yeah i'm that's yeah. impressive that's funny well yeah so he's got some big ones in there <laughs> yes he does that's a cool spot if anyone's listening to stop there that like, has the opportunity it's uh and they are there and i would say they're shot mostly within 20 miles of that store 30 yeah um the problem is they just don't get to age a lot um now so uh, but if they do, they grow big just like that. Those dark corn chocolate. Oh, heavy I love that. They're just monsters. They look like they're from Saskatchewan. They, yeah, they do. That's exactly. So growing up, Saskatchewan was kind of like in my mind as a kid. So I grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, uh, and like Saskatchewan, those dark corn bucks in the cold was like, you know, pinnacle, right? So so for for the UP, like why doesn't that, you know, this is kind of side, side uh question here but like you said that they're not able to grow big is that because is that like a cultural thing like we're just shooting them younger or or like is that wolves or like what, what do you see in the reason for for behind that you know honestly um the the number of hunters has actually gone down yeah um but uh you know there's a few factors of habitat you know the habitat and the deer yards they don't support that many deer um and so when you have when you have high numbers of deer like we did in the 90s yeah. early 90s um in late 80s, then you have 10,000 go into deer yard that sports 5,000, and only 2,500 come out. So that's part of it. Yep. But but really, um, and I feel strongly about this, and I, I have nothing against baiting. I don't think it's unethical or anything. I don't really care if people bait. Yeah. But um, baiting allows people to sit in a deer blind for a week and shoot the first year and a half old buck that comes in. Yep. When you have so many hunters in Michigan, you have that traditional attitude that you know not you can you blame them and it's the first year they see the first buck they see and it took them a week and it comes in but you could clean off an area of year year and a half old box just about every season so they just don't it's easy to shoot bucks over bait if you just keep putting it out you're persistent 
and especially if you hunt the wind, you hunt yep. remote access, that's good access. And so, and, and that's, that's not my opinion. That's shared by a lot of the biologists up there and uh, some key ones. But if you look at baiting started to take hold at the end of the 80s, early 90s, and I know guys up there that have hunted for 40 plus years and they've only ever hunted with bait. Huh. So they've never experienced anything else. And on one hand, you can go out and take advantage of that situation sure. if you're not using bait and um, and you can try to find the best bucks in the area. But on the other hand, it does reduce the overall age structure of bucks. Yeah. I, I just don't think there's any doubt. Well, and I think it also, I mean, your, your woodsmanship skills are a little different uh, over a pile. You're not really learning what, what, what deer are doing. Uh, right. Yeah. What a, what a funnel is in a swamp, you know, finding a rub line. And, and the rub lines are different up there. When you go up public land in big habitat, yep. a rub line here where I'm sitting on my Minnesota property, um, you know, you might have rubs that are 20 feet apart, 50 feet apart. They're, they're 200 yards apart. Yes, they are. So, if you're going in and looking for the kind of sign that you might be used to in southern Michigan, you go up there and apply those skills, and you're going to be a little bit lost just because there it's way much larger, big movement area in yeah. the up there. And I, I'll probably be back there again. I've only missed maybe three um, times hunting in Michigan since 1985. Oh, cool. So I want to get back up. Even if it's just for a day for November 15th, 16th, I'll, I'll be back up there, Lord willing, uh, this, this year. Oh, it's, it's a... I love it. I mean, it, the deer hunting is not, you know, Iowa or whatever, but it's uh, the tradition is is no. a really cool thing. No, but there, you have that occasional big one, and if you're, yep. you know, I, I just want to show up and hunt some of the funnels I know, and I'll check out three or four, hopefully the day before or afternoon before, just check out which ones have the best sign, and I'll go in and sit. Yep. Let the wind be my friend and yep. pull the non-deer area and see what comes through, but I did that. I think it was 2011, I had 148 in Jade Point come through. So that was an incredible buck for up there out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, no, that's that's really impressive. Well, one yeah, of the... There's, there's some occasional decent ones. So. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? And uh, we, we see them on occasion, It's it's uh, and that makes it all the more exciting when they when they step very, out. Very special. Yeah. yeah, when you... Like a three-year-old up there in the UPM public land is worth a five-year-old here in Minnesota. Yeah. Because they're... they're they're hard to come by, so no. I, I adjust my I adjust my expectations too. I'm happy to shoot three year olds. And I can appreciate that too. That's it's good to hear people say, you know, the the expectations. You know, we, we hear this a lot from people that listen. Uh, you watch like hunting media and things, you know, TV shows uh, and read magazines and things, and it's like you feel like you're. I don't know. It's like you're not doing it right, or you're not as good of a hunter because you're not shooting these, oh, yeah. you know, six year old deer and and it's just not it's not reality everywhere for all people. Right. Yeah, I went to Pennsylvania. I go out there. I think uh, then this will be the 20th season. I actually am going out there next week yep. um, with the public, public land challenge, hunting public challenge. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, you know, out there, it's the same thing. Shot a nice buck last year. I don't know if he's three or four years old. I don't really care. Right. I pulled the trigger as soon as I saw him. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. He was, a, he was a nice buck. I'm a mile and a half in on public land, and, you know, it's just – it's so much fun and rewarding, um, you know, as much as one of these big boys down. No, I, I like that. No, I can, I can appreciate that. So one of the reasons, so, you know, for among many reasons, you know, you, you're connected with the HuntWise guys and even with First Light and, and we've been kind of following you for a while, just the videos that you put out. How many videos do you put yeah. out in a year? Looks like, uh, what, one every we, other day or something like that? Yeah, almost, we're putting out, uh, and we were trying to keep a pretty strict schedule. We tried to last year. We put out 198 last year. 
198, and I feel like I missed by 10. And so we're, we have a goal of four per week. And right now we're right on goal. Um, in fact, we have our videos that they're already created and done all the way out through the 24th of October or 26th, something like that. Yep. Well, we put them out on um, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and we've been religious about that. Um, I think the last time we missed um, something would have been like last summer or somewhere. Oh wow! Okay, that, that's that's so, impressive. That's uh, dedicated, but it's such good content. I mean, anybody that's listening, well, I appreciate if, that. if if you want to know anything, I mean, that uh, it's it's been stuff that's that's certainly helped us a bunch. So we we appreciate well, that. What one of the things, kind of going to what we talked about a little earlier, one of the things I really enjoy um, and that's really rewarding to me is that I get comments from people that have hunted for 30, 40 years, yep. and they say they learned something. And that means a lot to me. And then I get a lot of new hunters, first-time hunters, uh, people that shot their first buck this year, they left in the comments. So we average over 100 comments per video. And to see some of those comments that it's reaching a wide audience like that makes me feel pretty good. I, I like hearing that. Yeah, no, it's it's cool. And it's hopefully those new hunters now have a leg up, you know, or it took some guy 40 years to 30 years to, to learn yeah, something, yeah, exactly. you know. Here. Yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's pretty rewarding. Uh, but most of all, you know, why create the videos or the content or even podcasts if it's not helping someone? Exactly. So yeah. That's, that's the, whole, the whole purpose. And what you're doing really is you're shaping <laughs> a hunting approach for uh, the next generation of people, which is, uh, I mean, there's, there's some like, uh, that's a, that's a responsibility, you know, that's, uh, that's it a big is. deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I try to, and, and you can imagine it's me doing it by myself, Dylan edits, and yep. puts them up and then I title, describe, you know, tag words, all stuff. Shoot them together. Um, but uh, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of negativity, and I think in, in hunting in general, what the, the approach I've taken is just to delete the negativity. And so, instead yeah. of discussing it, instead of leaving it there for non hunters or new hunters to read, um, I'd rather just uh, you know, you, you have a little button there, hide, hide user from channel, and that means they can't comment, do anything um, there again. Yeah, so once they cross that line, I think it helps hunting in general because again going back to the responsibility of the new hunters on our retention entertainment and um and, and uh, attraction is to make it look we do have a very positive sport you want to let that you know one percent one percent attract no i get those comments just i feel like and they're the relentless they don't just stop with one mean comment you know they no, keep no, going <laughs> they they so dig in lead them yeah and then that's a good thing, and they can go on and spend their time somewhere else. Yeah, bash me in a forum. That'll be that's that'll be uh, better, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I like that. Um, so really, though, the, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, and it was it's partially a selfish reason because you know I want to learn from you. Um, but we're oh, this podcast will go out basically the last week of October, which mm-hmm. if anybody knows you, um, they know that you have a special affinity for that time of year. Uh, you want to talk about why you like uh, end of October? Yes. Um, so on the, the properties that I hunt, and even if I was on hunting public, if I was hunting public land, you're trying to find current bucks, mature bucks that are around the area. If, if you're hunting for an older buck or if you're hunting for a young buck, whatever it might be. What I like about the end of October is very definitive as far as when deer moving and where they're at and where they're located. For example, I have bucks that I saw during the summer on this Minnesota property that will come back during the peak of the rut, which would be early November. Yep. But I'm probably not going to see them in the at the end of October because they live somewhere else and, and they're going to stay there. And once they breed one or two does, they're over here in early November. So I like 
that end of October because the bucks that I have present right now on camera, good sign popping up, good tracks, whatever you're measuring that be in public or privately, yeah. very definitive times where they're going to be all of a sudden moving a lot of hours during the morning, and, and they're very susceptible. And so half of my oldest bucks have been killed during that last seven to ten days of October when they're first cruising between bedding areas and putting out a lot of miles in the morning hours. That that takes place. It's not going to happen when it's 85, 90 degrees. Right. And so it, that's another very definitive portion of the strategy is once you see the weather is decent that time of year, then I'm heading straight to my best morning stands where I think a mature buck will be hanging out. He's going to move a lot of miles. He might only be in 10 acres, but I'm going to be on the downwind edge of that. A good approach. I'm not approaching food in the morning yep. and I'm sitting in that stand and that's where the magic happens. That's where uh, great things happen um, at that time. So, and I, I'm, I'm going to set you up with this question. So, you're looking for, uh, you know, this, this cold front and you're looking at all these things. It seems like that's a lot of factors for someone to consider. Like, it would be nice if there were you know, some way to, 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 to know when this is like maybe a way to measure it in terms of, you know, how many deer day is it or what percentage chance? Like, you want to explain uh, if that's, if there's a solution for that? Yes. And, I, and I'll explain. I mean, that boils down to why I helped and worked with HuntCast over the last nine months. To, I, I developed an algorithm for an Outdoor Life article in 2015. And so for 10, 12 years at least, I've been making predictions online, taking a random city, like we used Bedford, Indiana, on a video a few days ago that we shot when we were hunting in Kentucky, just a random city, and um, and used that and went through the forecast. So in the past, I'd take a 15-day forecast, I'd put red, yellow, and green dots on it, I'd color them, I'd write an article, put it in a video, and explain to people, you know, if you're living in Michigan, this front that, that's hitting western Wisconsin is going to be to you tomorrow. Yep. You look for these changes. And, and to me, it was all about change. You know, the drop in temperature, the uh, wind, um, wind speed has changed. Uh, not necessarily calm. Calm is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. Uh, but the heavy extremity of weather has changed. And so all these factors are thrown in with different values for each. And that's what I've looked at since the early 90s. And then it spits out a score. And yep. that's what I did for outdoor lighting. We had most of my bucks have been shot on 70, 90% days. And so we were able to reflect that in the hunt cast um, and, and work with the uh, the team over there. And, and really, it's been, I probably had 20 meetings with them at least. We've had many in person. They've been out here in Minnesota. We've met in Madison halfway up in Grand Rapids several times. Lots of Zoom meetings, you can imagine. Yep. And, uh, and so I, it's really cool because the team there, there's one individual um, that I work with all the time, and, and we're always looking to refine it. So the last time we met, like two weeks ago, we looked at it and said, man, I, I think this is at 95% of what I can look at the forecast and say, this is what I would do during these days. This is what I would hunt, wouldn't hunt. This is what I would hunt, a stand on the side, and I might best stand. And now that's all in Huntcast. So for, instead of me taking a random two-week forecast, putting dots on it and explaining why each day is best, now it's all built into the into the Huntcast formula. And on top of that, it gives advice for hunting each one of those phases and why you're hunting mornings during the pre-rut instead yeah. of evenings during the October low, for example. So it's it's pretty cool to see what's been in my head since early 90s and how that's been refined, and then now it just spits it out in the app. It's nice to, to kind of learn from you right like all this time you spent and, and to have it right right there not only to see you know a percentage or, or a number deer number but like 
I like to have, you know, I know there's percentages, but I like to have, say it's like a four deer day, five deer day. So that's, that's what Jared and I keep it on. But, um, it's nice to have an explanation. Like I like the videos and the, and the written explanations that you have there too. So I can actually, you know, learn, um, and kind of know my, for myself. We've, we've probably shot with hunt, with hunt wise and the team I've probably shot six or 70 videos. And in fact, that reminds me, they're waiting on a description for the signing phase, which is right now. <laughs> I need to get that over to them. But we've, I've written about 30 descriptions, too, for each one of I mean, even going to shed season and when you should take your stands down and uh, post-season uh, scouting, when you should be doing that, bedding area work, bedding, scouting bedding areas. So we, we take the whole 365 days and let you know what you should be doing at each phase and, and how and why. And, um, but, yeah, that's it's been broken down just – People can't imagine the depth that we've put into this. I mean, yeah. really, we had a team of several individuals working for nine months to get it to this point. And yeah. so, and we're still refining it. Um, and the cool thing is, at this point, we can look at it. That's when we, we should, should hunt, and that's when people should go to the woods, and it's right there. So. Yeah, not. I mean, most people that listen to this show, and, and probably most hunters, have families and you know, daily, uh, responsibilities and everything else. So, so to be able to have, um, an idea, uh, when, you know, to use those, that precious time off is, is handy. Although I will say tonight, actually it's a good day today. I'm wearing my Merino undies. And what that means is <laughs> if nice. I'm wearing my first light Merinos, that means I'm hunting this afternoon. And I know there's not, it's like maybe a one deer day right now, but when my eight year old says, Hey, Dad, I know we're hunting on Friday, but is there any way we can hunt again before Friday? It's like, well, I'm gonna drop, every, I'm gonna drop yeah. everything. I was telling my telling my wife the other day, I was like, I know on the vows there's like, you know, forsaking all others. I was like, well, actually, I think that re- refers to when your daughter asks you to go hunting, you're forsaking all other responsibilities, you know, to, to take her out. Yeah. So. I think I think that's what that means exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's so. it's weirdly unique to throw into to wedding vows, but you know what? Whatever. I, I didn't write them. So. Well, it's you know it's. And this is why this formula and um, this approach and strategy was born was, you know, basically going through the 90s. I had to maximize. I was uh, working banking. I could take a half day off just about any time I wanted during yeah. the hunting season because I mostly worked with women. So they weren't, you know, there weren't a lot of women hunters by percentage. And I, did, I didn't know of any women hunters at the bank where I worked, maybe one or two. Yeah. But I could actually, this is all the range there. So I could get a half day off or a day off anytime I wanted, but I had to maximize that time. I only had two weeks off and then three weeks later. But, um, so it really matters. And, and then when it, when it went into the two thousands and I had kids and three kids yep. and, um, and we had to manage that, um, it really was important if I was going to take, I, I would drive and hunt one Wednesday, seven hours away in Wisconsin. Because that Wednesday evening and Thursday morning was going to be perfect. And then I'd drive home, get home by Thursday night, and I only had one day off work. And that was better than taking a long weekend during the wrong time. Yep. And I learned that my success rate went up uh, substantially. You can shoot do- more deer by sitting on the couch. Uh, the more time you spend in the, on the land, the more you burn out your stands. Exactly. Burn out your family, burn out your career, everything. So it's better to you know, have a laser-like focus, highly predictable plan to go sit. And if you don't want to, you know, if you want to hunt 10 other days, just go hunt somewhere else or out to the side. But um, the point is that, you know, even the app and the, the algorithm, it points out the best days that give you a great chance of success. success. And I think on some of those days, you have, you have a 30, 40, 50 times more uh, chance of success than some of those real low-value days. You can't, you can't have enough low-value days that will ever add up 
to uh, one outstanding high quality. And that's why I like the percentages. So if you have a bunch of five percent and three percent, they could never add up to the quality in one ninety percent day. Well, it's it's like, your... like tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's well, it's interesting you say that, and we've we've had a lot of like guests um, on that are you know pretty proficient whitetail hunters, and it it seems to me that a lot of these guys are numbers, almost numbers guys, where you look at it in terms of success percentages, um, like how do I increase what increases my odds, and you know fa- weather's a factor, and wind, and you know barometer, and even things like. Um, scent control or height of a tree stander. It's all trying to stack as many numbers as you can in your favor. Yep. Yeah, what uh, percentage. But really, there's no other than, and even scent control, you just don't blow your scent towards a deer. I know. I'm not a scent guy. Yep. I'm looking at, like, I'm sitting on our land right now, and I'm purposely parked here because I'm analyzing the trees for a potential new stand location in this this spot. And I'm just sitting here in the truck. It's, we have 40 mile an hour winds today, so it's perfect. And, yep. but um, I'm going to sit in a location where I'm blowing my scent into a non-deer area. So that's number one factor. But then access, yep. not burning out your stance. Once you've done all that, and then the scouting takes place, the rub sign, if you have cameras in the area, let you know there's that buck you want in there. Once he's moving during daylight or around that time, um, or you're using that weather to tell you it's, it boils down to the weather forecast and then it's laser like focus. You go in and shoot the buck. I, I look at it like a lot of those sets are 40% sets. Yeah. So, um, it's really not, I would say not that hard. It's just a very effective, very predictable pattern. You it's not complicated. In, no, no. You get into that late October and you go find a morning stand where a big buck's coming out of, you can get in there safely without spooking him in his food source that night or in the morning. Yep. Winds on your side, weather's on your side, the prediction, and uh, you really should see him. You know, he's going to move around a lot at the end of October, and that's why the end of October time is is great. Um, I had one point. I have a, have a uh, some that play a lot of ball with in, in Coon Valley, where I'm from, yep. and his nickname is Box. But Box talks about if you need, uh, he'll always ask, you shoot your buck in October? And I'll say, no, Box, I didn't. He's like, ah, you're not a, you're not a good hunter. <laughs> so like, the good hunters shoot their big, their big bucks in October. <laughs> and, it runs, and then the other hunters need the rut, so they shoot. <laughs> right, so right. That's, he's always slamming me if I don't shoot one in October, but it's an interesting point. That well, then I'm an awful hunter because that is pretty I, much. About half the years, I'm pretty bad. Yeah. So, I, I, I do shoot. You know, half of mine in November too. So it's yeah, you know, but uh, well, t- talking about percentages, and this is a little bit of a side point. So, um, you've lived in Michigan, right? Um, and say, so I, I hunt a lot of on, on public land. Say, I'm going in um, to a spot that I've I've really been watching. I like. I've seen it over the, the past couple of years. I know there's some good deer in there, and I'm gonna go sit it, and say it's not a good you know percentage day, but it's the day I have right. So I go sit. And I, I leave, right? Um, how long before that spot normalizes? Like, till it's and, and obviously I know rut plays a factor and it probably erases it a lot faster. But like, how long does that take? You know, so there's there's a real that's a really good question, and and I'll put it like this: like when you get into a bedding area, yeah, and it's a morning sit, and you went in there when it wasn't optimum. Uh, let's say he just wasn't there. You didn't spook him. Right. Well, if he's not there, he's not bedding there. He's not moving through that area yet. Yeah, probably no harm, no foul. Uh, you know, pretty. You probably hunt that that stand pretty quick if 
again, depending on how low impact it was. Yeah. When deer go to a food source, however, that's the highest form of risk to me. Sure. That they move into any 24-hour period. And so if you go into a bait pile in Michigan yep. and you spooked one little deer, you left your scent that are going in and out, um, you could have a great impact on not only that bait station or that bait pile, but then the surrounding area too within 200 yards. So even a, even a big food plot, same thing. You go in there and you overrun a food plot, you spook some deer out of yep. there, you went in on a bad day. Maybe they were, they were just coming into it when you're getting out yep. and you spook them. Um, then, boy, it, it can take another week or two for that same pattern to start again because you spooked it out that one time. It's already a risky spot to own. Sure. And so it really depends on, you know, are you hunting a, a low-impact funnel area between food and bedding? That's another one. A lot of those you can hunt over and over again because you're blowing, you're accessing safe, you're blowing your scent to the safe side, and you really didn't impact that yeah. much. I'm thinking of a drop-off scheme we have here. Literally, it's a giant oak on the edge of the drop-off. There's CRP and field behind it. You look at a drop-off, a bench that we, that's in like 20 yards. That's yep. the deer trail, and then it drops off completely from there. Unless we're standing around in the middle of that movement or spooking deer on the way in or out, we could hunt that every day, five days in a row uh, with little impact. Well, I, that's, a, that's a good point. That's, uh, so Jared and I typically, since because we're public land guys, it's like we'll go in and know that, you know, just assume that we're going to blow it out. Like you get one hunt. So we just get a bunch of public land spots, and then you kind of cycle through them and give them hopefully enough time. Um, but what we found is in public land, people are just always out. And so it's like you got to be aggressive to go to your best spot soon and then hopefully go again in a rut. Yeah, and that's that's a thing too. Like sometimes with public land, especially small public land where there's other people that you're competing with, yeah. then the time to hunt is now. You know, you, you need to get in there and be aggressive, like you said, and, and – um, but when it gets in during the rut, we've had stands in, in Ohio in 65,000 acre Shawnee State Forest where we know there's, we have very good suspicion that there's no one else in that area at yeah. all. We're hunting a funnel and we're hunting deer movement on a big scale because it's public land. We can hit that same high quality rut cruising stand every single day until we shoot something. We've had times where um, we messed up on a deer or two and then you go in there in the fourth day and shoot a different one. And it's because it's big movement, public land, and those rock cruising stands you can hit. Uh, you might be able to hit them a week straight. I think it's time for a break. Yeah, we we were getting long-winded. Yep. It's time for a break. We're going to thank a couple of our uh, couple more sponsors. Who doesn't love smoked meat? Jared? Communists. That's <laughs> who doesn't like smoked meat. If you're not a communist... Check out Gorilla Grills. So whenever you go out to the field and you procure your own game, mm-hmm. you can bring it back and press your wife, your husband, your kids, your, your friends, fam- friends, your family, anybody with your smoked meat. Check out GorillaGrills.com for all your smoking needs. Everybody knows that arrows are the lifeblood of the hunting industry. If you're a bow hunter, your worth is measured in the amount and the quality of arrows that you have. If you have good arrows, and a lot of them, you are arrow rich. And everybody wants to be arrow rich. Everyone wants to be arrow rich. In one way of doing that, using vector arrows. Why? They are the best. They are tough. You can go to their website, enter all your bow specs in, and they'll spit out the exact arrows that you need. Check them out, vectorcustomshop.com. And be arrow rich. If you're looking for quality, handmade, traditional archery equipment, look no further than Bivouac Bow Co. 
Jim in Georgia. Actually, we had him on the podcast, episode 93. Check it out. Handmake bows. They have years of experience. Their machining is precise, and their products are beautiful. Check them out at bivouacboco.com. And finally, I want to introduce a new sponsor of the show. Wild Pursuit Wellness makes premium CBD products. It's all natural, broad spectrum CBD, meaning that there is less than 0.0% THC. It only has two ingredients, CBD and MCT coconut oil. It can be ingested or used topically on the skin to help with muscle soreness or joints. We we use it a lot after long hikes or, or sits out in the woods. It's grown and extracted right in the Rocky Mountains, and it's shipped directly to you anywhere in the United States. It's great CBD at an extremely low price, and it can be even lower if you use promo code BOGA for 20% off at checkout. Check them out, wildpursuitwellness.com. What, you know, what is the rut? How does it work? What does it look like? Uh, you want to explain for someone who might be new or just, you know, wants to like give somebody the truth. Cause there's a lot of things that people say about the rut, um, for, for a guy who spent yeah. a lot of time around it, what, what do you have to say about it? Boy, there can be times in, and let's just say, let's just use Michigan for an example. Um, especially as you go further North and when you get into UP of Michigan, yeah, the rut is very defined because when boats come into Astros, if, if um, they're bred and those, and it's too early, meaning like, uh, let's say they were bred October 1st, it's in UP of Michigan. Well, those swans are going to be born likely in snow in the UP of Michigan. They have died. Um, if they're born too late, they can't make it through a northern winter and they die. So the further you go north, it's a lot tighter window. That's just nature's way of protecting those swans. Or you get down to Georgia, Florida, Alabama, yeah. you can have a trickle run over four or five months. Yeah. So, what I'm looking at is the pre-rut begins, it's more activity, and there might be an occasional doe that's coming into heat, but those older bucks know the game, they start laying a lot of sign, and that's why you look at that last seven to ten days of October, you'll see a flurry of rubs and scrapes and a lot of sign, and one person two miles away might not see anything, and that just means that you have a local mature buck that's laying down a lot of sign, and in that other area, it's not that the pre-rut hasn't begun, it's just they don't have a big buck around to lay down that sign. And so the rut will start at the same exact time every single year. Every year. If you're, yes, it doesn't change from year to year in any way. There's moon. Could, no, the moon has nothing to do with the rut time in any way. Um, and what's cool is John Azoga um, up in, uh, they studied whitetails, and they had about 20 years at least data of ultrasound and uh, fetuses in park hill bows, that kind of thing. And so they were able to look at, let's say, $1,500, $2,000 over a 25-year period of time, and they saw no change in the timing of the rut when those when those off. And I'm not saying it's a day. I'm saying it's uh, you know 80% in that case were born within 20 days yep. of each other. And, and that's in a really tight window. But what they found is there was no correlation to the moon or any other influence of the timing of the rut happened the same time every single so knowing that gives you a lot of power. Yeah, for sure. And, and what that means is, is if you are getting into the 28th of October and you're not seeing signs, because you don't have an older buck around. But rest assured, the pre-rut's begun, and that means that there's a couple of those here and there are starting to come in. The big bucks are getting ready because they know what's going to happen. Um, a four-year-old buck lays down um, 50 times more sign than a year and a half. So okay. that's part of it, too. So when you get into that, those, those last 10 days of October, November, or in October, um, 
and, and that might be the first, you know, the last three or four days and first five or six days in Southern Ohio, Southern Indiana, Southern Illinois. Yep. But that's that pretty right time. And all of a sudden, you just kind of think that as a ramp, all of a sudden, more and more does are coming into estrus. And there's always a lot more does and bucks. So all of a sudden, about the end of October, first few days of November, every buck has a doe. So there's maybe only a third of the doe that come into heat, or even 20%. But there's enough to go around for every um, buck, just about. What dates are those? That would be uh, probably the end of, let's say, October 30th through the third, fourth of November. Yep. yep. That's that time where eventually, whether it's the first of November through the fourth or the 30th through the second, there's a period of time where there were every buck is invited to the party, they participate, we call that the rut lockdown. So it gives you the appearance that, boy, the rod hasn't even started yet. Right. And here, in, in someone that looks at it like they ran four buck around, then the rut lockdown hits, they're looking at it like, man, the rut hasn't even started to number third. But then all of a sudden, those bucks start releasing from does. Finding a new one. For a few yeah. days, and, then that, and then that gets into the pre-rut or the peak rut, and that would be peak rut activity starts about the 4th, 5th, 6th of November in Michigan. And and then that extends, like they'll give a mid-rut date of, say, November 13th, but that's considering a lot of times the secondary rut in early December. Yeah. Um, the pre-rut period, it's very misleading when you look at a biologist you know, type um, report that's been influenced by a, a large number of does coming into estrus. You really need to look at it back to when does the peak rut activity begin in lower Michigan, that'd be the 4th, 5th, uh, 3rd of November. Yep. And then that'll, that'll extend for seven or 10 days. But boy, by the 15th in, in that gun season, opener in Michigan, it's really winding down. And we see that out here in western Wisconsin, southwest Wisconsin, yep. um, over here in eastern Minnesota, it's that same timing, and that extends over to Pennsylvania and New York. And so you're really on a, a similar pattern if you just follow across the line. And, um, and so... Once you hit that post rut period, that's that period of time where the peak rut has passed. It's on the it's on the, the downhill slide. Yeah. And what's interesting, that's a lot of times about that date that people are saying the peak rut is. So if oh, you're funny. if you're saying that peak rut is the 13th of November, like they might in Michigan or the 14th, then you're if you wait till that time, you missed about 80 percent of the good portion of the primary rut. And and so you're looking at peak rut activity starting the fourth fifth. That's the number you need to be concerned with. Um, rut lockdown is a bad time to hunt because you can hunt transition zones in between bedding areas and a big buck could come off the doe at any time. And then, of course, pre-rut gives you that chance that a big monster that's not locked into the doe yet, but he's really ruddy and searching around in his little home area. And then you get into the post-rut, those big ones don't want to let it go. But boy, if it's 80, 90 percent or 80, 90 degrees, and you have 30 mile an hour winds, and it's November 14th. You're probably not going to see much rutting activity, and that can really slam down the, uh, the post rut period, meaning that bucks just aren't going to cruise from a mile away looking for the next doe because it's not optimal cruising condition. What's interesting is when you get into that time period, think about it. Bucks have been active since the 20th of October, the 25th. Yep. And lost a lot of body weight. But when you get into the 18th, 19th of November, especially the 20th, they're just laying around doing nothing. Of course, they're tired. So unlike the pre-rut, rut lockdown, peak rut, post-rut, there's where mornings are incredible because it's cool in the day. There's a lot of studies that show the bucks move three times more in the morning than in the evening. Then you have to flip back to evening hunting, even food source movement. But even then, if it's not cold, it's just mild, warm conditions, 
he might just step back and I didn't hear anything until dark and you know to move. So you're really looking at starting and I and I hunt this way the entire hunting season, but especially October twentieth, twenty fifth, I'm looking at that roller coaster of cold fronts coming through and I'm hunting all the cold fronts and those cold fronts they're not gonna make deer breed during the daylight, but they're gonna make bucks move during the daylight to warm conditions, but they still breed at night. So it's movement, not breeding. Exactly. So, um, and, and barometric pressure, we'll just touch on that real quick. Barometric pressure, there's a lot of inconclusive studies about barometric pressure because barometric pressure, deer do not have a barometric pressure sensor in their head. They only react to tangibles. So they only react to wind, change in wind, moisture in the air, uh, temperature drop, uh, stress, weather-related stressor, extreme weather, that's what they relate to. That's why you can have the same barometric pressure and deer don't get caught out in the fields in the blizzard. But when it's going to be a mild two, three inches of wet snow, they're out there feeding, knowing they want to put some some uh, energy into their into their body. And they don't go out in those fields, even if the barometric pressure is the same uh, before a big blizzard because they're going to die and get caught out in the open. So they know that by, I mean, they could hear the wind, they can feel the wind change, they can feel the moisture in the air, they can feel the temperature dropping. Yeah. I mean, they live there at 365, so they react by tangibles, and that's why barometric pressure, it sometimes reflects great hunting conditions, and it sometimes reflects poor, um, but it gives you a lot of false positives and false negatives. Interesting, because so, so you, when you read, a lot of things are like, oh, it's all barometric pressure, you got to hit it on the upswing or the downswing, and... You know, this yeah. number, 30-some, is, is ideal. And so that's not always necessarily the case. Not at all. And so you can, uh, it gives a lot of false, and i just give you an example real quick. If Monday to Tuesday there's a huge temperature drop, then uh, Wednesday the conditions of calm, the, the thunderstorms came through, high winds and moderated to 20 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, they were 40. Yep. Um, the temperature dropped 17 degrees. Well, it's a great time to hunt. But if there's a storm coming a day later, two days later, a double storm, then the barometric pressure is going to still be low. Yep. So then there's a lot of forecasts that would miss that time. And that's going to be one of the top 10 days to hunt in the entire season. And the barometric pressure is going to miss it. Now, let's say the second storm comes through. Everything moderates. The barometric pressure is very high. The temperature is very low. That's that time where they both meet. That's another top 10 day of the year. A lot of forecast models miss that best day of the year because a day later, even though it's seven degrees warmer, barometric pressure is higher, and they're giving a higher value to that day, barometric pressure-wise, than the day that it actually um, clears yeah, out, and it's the best day. So the second day after the front, they're given a false positive. They have a false negative on the actual best day, and they have a false negative on the dump, on the drop in between the two fronts that came through the so that's where barometric pressure is just, um, and there's other, you know, falsehoods too, you know, when it's the same. And like I said, in the field for deer, do not get caught out in the blizzard because they know something's coming, even though the barometric pressure is the same number. Interesting. Well, and so you're, yeah, I mean, so it's actually the way that you're talking about it is, is actually, actually in, to me, simplifies things a bit. I mean, like you said, rut's the same way every year. It's Completely. not some voodoo magic based on whatever, you know, it's like you right. said, like you've alluded to, it's the photo period, right? It's the amount of hours of sunlight in the day that triggers things yeah. like hormonal production for antler growth and breeding and everything else. Right. Yep. Interesting. So the less daylight and, to darkness ratio, the, the, there's a point where there, that gets to a certain, you know, light, dark, and that triggers 
rutting activity. Yeah, it's the same, and it's the same every year. And so what's, what's really cool about that is you can go into a stand with laser-like precision, and that's what I do. I go in, I call them 40% sits, but I feel like I go into that morning stand. I go into that morning stand. I haven't hunted it all year. It's the 27th of October. It's an 82% day. Yeah. I have a 40% chance of shooting that, shooting that buck. It might even be higher than that. Yeah. So by the time I set three or four of those sets, you know, there should be a dead buck on the ground unless I screwed it up or captain's too. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, that'll happen. Uh, well, and that's where <laughs> it's, it's very methodical. Yep. No, I, that's, uh, again, like I said, you know, when we're talking to these guys who are, it's, there's some guys that can just be successful on occasion for, for, with deer, but like the consistent success requires a methodical approach, um, which expands beyond simply, you know, being out there, being able to read sign on the ground and all that. That's, that's obviously really important, right. but just the whether to go in and when to go in and, and even how to go in, uh, is you gotta oh, yeah. be methodical with it. Well, yeah, and even on top of that, there's a lot of hunters that have been successful for 20 years, but they've sat in the same rut cruising stand for 20 years and shot a big buck that goes by. Yep. That's a different kind of hunting. Yeah, right. When you want to actually you know, go into a certain buck in a certain stand and uh, and try to kill that target buck or two or three. Like, I'll be honest, there's two or three bucks I'm happy to shoot in Minnesota here, and that's the same in Wisconsin. Yep. Any one of those are going to be great, and I'd like to shoot two of them on each. Sure, right, right, right. I'm, I'm greedy. So it's what you're you're reading all those those areas we were talking before a little bit alluded to, but it's like playing poker in the deer woods. You're turning all the percentage and just hunted this stand over here. So five days later, and it's a good cold front, and it's a different wind. I'm hunting this stand over there. Um, it, we had a lease on one Wisconsin property um, in 12 years. I shot 17 bucks in 14 different stands. My buddy Carl uh, shot nine bucks during that same period from two stands. He shot eight from one stand, and he always loved going back to the same stand. And we made the decisions together. Just he always going back to the horse basher stand. Yeah. For that, I think it's it caused him to shoot about half as many bucks because I was always looking for the next freshest, great stand. And that's what one piece of advice I can give real quick is um, your best stand should always be the next stand you shoot a big buck out of, not your last. Right. Short memory, keep hunting, <laughs> there's a lot of other factors, and that'll lead you to a lot more bucks. No, I like that. You can't, have, you can't have favorites. Well, it just reminds me, my dad loves to, we have a spot up up north, and he hunts behind the graveyard. It's, it's his spot, and it's every year he goes there, and he, anytime we're, like, trying to figure out where the bucks are, he's like, well, the bucks are behind the graveyard, and it just makes me think, like, He's hunting the same stand over and over again. But, you know, what you, you've mentioned is, you know, if you're hunting that same rut kind of funnel, that's a very different style of hunting. Um, and yeah, that's yeah, something just time in the seat. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's something that, you know, we've we've noticed as we've done this podcast where there's there's guys that are out there, you know, reading sign uh, and, you know, public land reading sign. That's one style of hunting where you're just going out and kind of figuring out new spots every time there's guys who sit in the same spot there's there's places where you go to you know an outfitter where you they say here's where you sit you go sit there these are the names of the bucks and you know you wait for this buck to come by and they're they're all hunting they're just very different styles uh very different approaches to hunting yeah and you know and even that this this might surprise some people but um i've shot close to 30 bucks on public land yeah in the public land hunting to hunt per buck i've shot is a lot fewer days than on private land Really? Public land is easier to me because you can take several thousand acres, you can narrow it down to a couple hundred acres of yep. habitat, find yep. an area where there's no people, go in and leave the sign and go on. Yep. Um, private land here, you know, just on our Minnesota property. Um, I have 
14 tree stands, four blinds over on our property, including that, we have one blind and eight tree stands. And you're trying to narrow it down to the best stand for the stick for a particular buck with that wind, you're trying to manage where you've been. You yeah. know, it's a lot easier if you just go in and hunt a rough bubble stand on, on public land. I, it's almost going to the public land challenge. I'm not saying I'm going to shoot a big buck, but I like reading all the signs. I'm going to go in, I have three or four spots picked out. Yeah. I want to hunt land next week for the challenge. And we're just going to go in. I'm hunting big movement areas. I'm hunting lay of the land, big topography. And we're going in. I, I'm going to go and sit in spots where I think they should be. If there's sign, we're going to sit down and hunt. And if a big buck comes by, what? How, how much time did I really have invested in that? Yeah. But here on private land, you got to take that same factor of thousands of acres on public land and try to condense it into 100 acres, 40 acres, or 30 acres, and do a good job. And oh, by the way, don't spook it. Yep. Exactly. And, and and hunt better than your neighbors and it's it's you know it's just because you have private land doesn't mean it's easier you might be on more deer you might have the opportunity to see more bucks that doesn't mean that it's any uh less work in fact it's a lot more yeah well one of our guys talks about this a lot where he's like well you know for you guys on public land because you know jared and i have public land marcus kind of a photographer and, and he he hunts as well and he's like well for me i i have to be i mean i can't blow out the deer because i don't it's not like i can keep switching spots or like i have a lot invested into this this piece of land and so right. you know and i'm not playing off anybody else to to push them my way so it's it's just a right. very different style that's why i say like hunting is is very different uh, obviously by region but even just by you know where you're where you're at in a region um public private and, and everything else yeah and then you know being able to like you might have someone that's used to hunting public land and uh, Dan Info. Yeah. He's a, yep. a great hunter. He hunts a lot of islands, Oak Islands, back on public land. They they work really hard, you know, crossing through water, wading, doing some crazy stuff to get back in there, hunting out of small trees with a sad tree saddle. It's yep. some crazy stuff. But a lot of those strategies obviously don't translate to big hill country. Like let's right. say let's go down to sixty five thousand acre Shawnee Forest. That doesn't translate. No. And so there's there's different you, you want to be able to kill a white tail anywhere, but you really have to adapt your strategies to that specific area if you try to for example you can go find a buck bed where there's small islands and marshes and you have a lot of water in between you can probably find exactly where you're bedding and go wait for them in the morning to come back or wait for them to come out of that area but yep you don't try to do that on 65,000 acres shawnee no right <laughs> because it's it's literally a needle in a haystack and it's always changing yep so it's 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 so the same tactics you know have to be matched to the environment but uh Boy, private land is that's a lot of work, and, and that's I like that you say that because it's not a people just assume. Well, I get once I get private land, you know, then, and I suppose that's like the human condition. Once I get this, then I'll be happy. Then everything will come easy. Then, but like you said, I mean, no, it's just a very different set of challenges. It's but there's still <laughs> there's still significant challenges there. Yeah, and that's where like next week with the public land challenge, I I hope to get into a good area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's going to be a lot less stressful because we're just walking in. There's sign. We're just hunting. Yep. And then, and then I want to be back for lunch to hang out with the guys. We're gonna have a fire at night, and and uh, uh, we're gonna have dinner together. I mean, it's just more. It's it's we're here. Like we're getting up early in the morning. We're on that night. We're shooting bows in between. It's just but which stand? It's a, there's a lot more. I'm not saying there's not strategy applied in public place. Of course, it's different. Yep. Strategy. It's less almost less stress compared. 
I don't care if I order something out in a spot on public land. I'll just go to the next spot I have on the map. That's been our approach. It's just hunting. like, eh, I, I don't have yeah. to be so committed. It's <laughs> like I can get as aggressive as I want and walk away and not be – It's and not be all stressed about it. Like you said, it's yeah. uh, it's a lot less stressful that way. And if I spook a buck, I don't even know it. Exactly. I don't have trail cameras there. I don't, I don't, he's not named. Yep. You know, it's different. It's crazy. A lot of the guys around here, um, you know, they'll go buy a 900, 1100, 1500 acre, 2000 acre perch. We have those sizes around us here in Minnesota. But it's because they, you know, they kind of just kind of average. Yeah. Driving to the stands, that kind of thing. I'm, so when they get that 900-acre parcel, now that parcel encompasses more of the hunting mistakes. And so you can afford to mess up and still shoot a big buck on a 900-acre parcel. So I'm not talking about that. Yeah. I'm talking about if you're trying to manage 500 acres, 300, 400, 200, and I have less, and my average client has 60 acres. Right. So, yeah. Uh, my average client, actually 50% of my clients are 60 acres or less. And then about my average client size is about 100. So out of 125 clients over the last year since mid-December to mid-September, um, half of them were 60 acres or less. All right. Now I have to ask, do what's the smallest parcel? I've worked on down as low as five. So I've and got then, a three-acre parcel. That's why I ask. I, I That's pretty small. I talk to people. It's just my house with three acres in the back. But I, sometimes I go hunt the back three and uh, – you know, it's hard to the keep. Back three. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> a little funny. bit more of an urban setting. You know, not entirely like yeah. I buy fields and stuff, but very very different style of hunting and deer move uh, through those areas. A little different than in the woods. Basically, it's like depending on who's mowing their lawn that day. Yeah, exactly. You know? What's kind of cool about that is a lot of times deer used to uh, some amount of hunter scent, hunter movement. Oh I yeah. Mean, as far as human human scent, human movement, noise and. Oh, when I hunt in my backyard, coming through. yeah, I don't play the wind. There's, I have no, there's, because <laughs> yes. people are burning leaves and like, it's, it's just, they've, I've, I've never played the wind and I've never been blown out because they just don't, they're not looking for that. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things you, you know, on one hand, you could say you're hunting high pressured animals because the human population yeah, is so high right. pressured, but those deer are actually very low pressure deer in high human population areas. Yeah, they're and very acclimated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's subdivision hunting. That's a little bit, a little bit. That's fun though. I mean, because you never know if you, there's a big giant buck in the subdivision, you never know when it's going to be in that field. Well, and, and you know, for me, you know, young kid, uh, I like, I it, it just allows me to hunt more. You know, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and during the that's run, awesome. I, I've talked about this in the podcast in the past, but like, I also work from home. And so, like, this year, uh, this is my first year going to be, you know, new job working from home. I'm just going to yeah. be by the window because, like, there's no predictability for bucks rutting, but especially in subdivisions, but they always go through. You know, I've, I've told the story in the podcast before. My daughter and I, she loves, she's, you know, fantasy land. She wanted to go outside. She had a castle that she had made in the woods, and she wanted me to come. And my always excuse is, well, we'll do that. I'll bring my bow because I, I shoot a recurve. I'll just stump shoot for a while, and you can pretend I'm whatever whatever you want to pretend i am and so I, well, yeah. we were out there and it was we had just come back from wisconsin it was middle of the day um and we're she's playing we're shooting i'm just shooting my bow screwing around and i look and this and we've been out there for half an hour this whole time there's an eight point bedded 20 yards away i, I couldn't see him i don't know how i missed him and he's just watching us suddenly like i kind of turned toward him and he stands up i had no idea and he was right there. I could have shot him in his bed the entire time while he watched us. Had no no clue. So, um, not oh, nice. not gonna let that happen again. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fun. 
and that's you know again it goes back to um that's what i enjoy about whitetails yeah. is they're so complex uh, i'm not saying that turkey hunting isn't complex or calling elk or elk hunting or mule deer hunting but what i like about whitetail is there's so many different habitats that they're adapted to there's always something else to learn and so i feel like yeah, I've been on you know over a thousand clients and i feel like i learned something on every property and so if you go in with an open mind i mean you do learn a lot about whitetails you can't help it anybody yeah. would if you're going on that many properties it's just I fell into that, you know, into my career. It was after I hunted for many years and hunted a lot of different habitats and just kind of fell into it. I've been blessed to work with whitetails, you know, on a constant basis all year long, always planning, always yeah. planning the next uh, um, video that we're going to shoot, the title, the topic. <laughs> right. It's always, you know, I always have that in my wheelhouse of a lot of titles that we you know, have going forward. And then it's, you're always thinking about, it's almost like taking notes from, you know, a lot of times when I find a property, hey, there's a video. Can I take a note real quick? I write it down real quick on my phone. <laughs> and, um, and then I'm going to create a video. But it's something that I saw that you know, hit me hard. And I'm going to make a video about it. And it's because you're always learning, whether it's in the middle of the night, driving somewhere. No. I'll literally stop the machine. I'm driving side by side with Dylan. And I'll stop it and get my phone out. He's like, you got another idea? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> Mad scientist out something. there. Well, there's always another topic. You, you can never stop learning because whitetails are so complex. Yeah, no, and that, that's just, again, it speaks to the complexity and, and, you know, the nature of whitetail hunting. Like you've done, what, you said 600 videos on different topics, and you've got plenty of ideas popping in your head all the time. So I wanted to end with a discussion. So say it is, I'm looking at the calendar now, say it's the week of the 26th when this podcast will come out. Maybe say it's, you know, 28th, 29th, 30th, 26th. Sure. What... If you had, could pick an ideal weather, an ideal spot, like what what would what would be the dream scenario in that week's time? Sure, I, and I and it'll it'll happen. That's the cool thing because you're looking at it like a seven to ten day window. Yep. Um, and you know, and extending into the rut, but I love that end of October time. I'm looking for an unpressured morning stand where I know there's a history of mature buck cruising through that area. Yep. It's thick. It's remote. I can get into it from a backside, meaning that I can come in from the non-food side. So let's say I get into that bedding area, and it's a, it's a island out of a swamp. It's a ridge point, yep. um, an inside bench on a ridge or whatever it might be. I'm getting into that area from the backside. Food might be at least 200 to 400 yards away because I don't want to get into a position where I'm, I'm spooking out deer in between transitioning from food to bedding in the morning. Yeah, but I'm getting into that location. I'm on the downwind edge of that bedding area, pretty thick around. A lot of those areas I use my bow during gun season because I can't shoot more than 40 yards anyways. Yeah. And so I, I hunt with my bow about half the time during gun season just because it's a short shot and I use my bow. I like it. Yeah. And um, I'm looking for, you know, it might not be the first. Yep. But that second, third, first uh, toe numbing morning. So <laughs> first frost yeah and it's um i'm going into that there's been major weather that's broken through um there's been a temperature drop of at least eight to 12 miles or 12 degrees or higher like tomorrow it's not during that time yet but it's a 20 degree temperature drop and so you know you're looking for those major conditions to take place and change and when the conditions are moderated the temperatures drop remote stand location, unpressured stand, morning stand location. And I can count on those mature bucks moving approximately three times more during the morning course than they will the afternoon and evening. And, uh, and that's when I'm heading into that stand. It is not an all-day set. 
it's you're hunting a morning stand. So the closer it gets to dark, those deer are moving towards food sources. You need to pick an evening stand. So a lot of times I might be hunting all day in the, in the, out in the woods. Yeah. But most of the time that means two different stands, one that relates to food in the evening and uh, bedding here in the morning. No. So that would be ideal, you know, at that, any of that time. So I'm hitting morning stands, and if I have work to do, I'm definitely acting out the evening stands um, and, and really concentrating on those morning stands. Well, 75% of my top 50 bucks have been shot um, near bedding areas, and, 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 and those bedding area bucks have been about 100% in the morning. Because if you go in there in the afternoon, evening, you're just spooking them. You right. Know where no, that's great. That's that. You know, that's always a question that we're, we're that we're asked, or someone will message us about like what what's ideal, and it it, it depends. You know, it's like the answer always is it depends, but. Um, right. that, that, yeah. you know, but that's, that's great stuff. Well, Jeff, um, thanks for, for coming on, uh, for people who want to follow you, watch your videos and everything else, how, how can they find you, um, and, and kind of access that stuff? Well, sure. The, the, uh, YouTube channel is Whitetail Habitat Solutions. And, and then the website is whitetailhabitatsolutions.com. Um, I sell my books uh, and web class on the website and, and also, um, books on Amazon. And then, um, and then Instagram, White Tail Habitat Solutions. Jeff Sturgis, you can find me pretty easy there. And then Facebook, I have uh, White Tail Habitat Solutions too. So White Tail Habitat Solutions will get you in those. And if you're more the type of person that likes to read, I have about 600 White Tail articles on my site. And then YouTube, we have about 600 videos. So they've taken many years to get <laughs> We have quite the collection. Blood, sweat, and tears poured into that, I'm sure. It's It really has. I mean, very... A lot of hard work and consistency and and um you know i'm sunday mornings i'm up at 6 a.m my video out and that's that doesn't change if i'm on vacation or whatever it's just something i do I take about 45 minutes an hour and get it done same with saturday morning tuesday thursday doesn't matter where i'm at what i'm doing that's just what i do awesome well thanks again for coming on and we re- really appreciate yeah. you sharing your, your your knowledge yeah thanks for having me james this has been really nice all good conversation and appreciate it and uh appreciate uh, you letting me talk about my social media channels yeah. people will check it out and they can ultimately that like i said the bottom line is people are learning something and i'm doing something wrong <laughs> back and um, hopefully uh, it's working to help yeah well thank you very much we'll we'll talk to you soon yeah sounds good Jay. Yeah, talk to you later bye-bye thank you for listening to this episode of the boga hunting podcast you guys like what you hear and want to follow along on what we're currently up to hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on and follow us on instagram at boga hunting join us next week and we'll see you then